for the week of February 6th, 2014. This is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media, here in Washington, D.C. as usual, but I'm in a different location in the middle of the Department of Transportation. We are here in a conference room where we've been talking all day with a variety of analysts, uh, people in the DOT, and a variety of government agencies about the future of transportation, and we have learned a lot. We're going to digest that today. My usual co-hosts are with me, Jigar Shah, founder of Sun Edison. How are you, sir? Doing well. And Catherine Hamilton, founder of the public policy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. How are you? Great to be here. Usually I just drive right by to go to the Nationals game, but today we got to come in to the Department of Transportation. It's wonderful. <laughs> and you sound th- so excited about that. <laughs> and we are joined by two very special guests. We have Greg Winfrey, who is the Assistant Secretary of Research and Technology here at the DOT. Greg, how are you? Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for joining us here at the Department of Transportation headquarters. You bet. And we also have Austin Brown, who's an analyst with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Austin, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. All right, so great panel today. We are going to talk about the future of transport. We're going to break this down into three segments. In the first segment, we're going to look at immediate pressure points. Where are we seeing the most noticeable changes to business models, to technologies, and in planning today? In the second segment, we're going to look toward the end of the decade and ask how those changes might play out. And in our final segment, we're going to ask what a truly low or zero carbon system will look like, and more importantly, what it's going to mean for stakeholders in this room uh, and the people out there listening. So this is going to be a free-flowing dialogue as usual. I hope that people will feel free to play off each other, agree, disagree. First topic, let's get going. There's no doubt that America is undergoing a shift in transportation, particularly in the uh, light vehicle sector. There are fewer vehicles on the road. Younger drivers are clocking fewer miles and buying fewer cars. And fuel consumption recently uh, has decreased. At the same time, we're seeing car sharing models gaining ground, states and cities getting more serious about public transport, and automakers introducing a range of new electric vehicles. So let's dig into some of these trends now. Um, Greg, let's start with you. I want to talk about some of the immediate pressure points here. So maybe from either a policy perspective or from what you're seeing out there in the business, what are some areas of change that you see happening today that are of interest? Well, certainly I'd have to talk about uh, an announcement we made earlier in the week led by Secretary uh, Fox and Acting Administrator Friedman from NHTSA, and it has to do with connected vehicle technology. And uh, at the outset, it's a safety system that allows vehicles to talk to each other and avoid crashes, but the overlay to that is there are uh, what we deem to be, as we uh, continue to explore this technology, significant benefits from a congestion mitigation standpoint, greenhouse gas reduction, and other environmental benefits. So it's a suite of, of um, possibilities, but as I said, the outset is safety, but the, uh, it, it's a broad prospect that will bring improvements to the transportation system overall. Mm. Greg, is that, is that a first step towards you know, automated vehicles? 
the short answer we see is yes. Uh, we, we don't deem automated vehicles being able to work absent a connected environment. Uh, it would be important for vehicles to not only have their own situational awareness, but there'll be a need for them to be aware of what other vehicles around them are doing. So we see this as a foundational infrastructure, not just for vehicles, but uh, for pedestrians, cyclists, motorcyclists, uh, a complete streets road approach to uh, roadway safety and efficiency. Greg, today the uh, Senate Commerce Committee had a hearing on distracted driving, and they had telecom uh, device manufacturers, car companies there talking about all how these technologies <laughs> need to try to work together. So I was wondering from, from where you stand, do you, th do you see a need for any interoperability standards or other kinds of policy changes to help you get to this vision that you all have? I can't say that I foresee a need for policy changes, but we do have a need for connectivity, and not just in the electronic sense, but in the industry sense. So we need vehicle manufacturers, telecom companies, device makers, all working in the same space with an understanding and a view that distraction uh, is a hazard. It's a hazard not just behind the wheel, but for those of us here in a congested city see distracted walking with folks with headphones in and heads down texting. They're not looking where they're going. So uh, it's a hazard all the way around that uh, folks that are not situationally aware present a hazard to themselves and to others. Yeah. Austin, you've done a lot of work on autonomous driving as well. This is an area of great interest. What are the near-term possibilities for this technology that you see? Yeah, yeah, the hard part is going to be saving the fun stuff about automation for the medium and long term yeah, uh, right. part, of, part of the podcast. <laughs> well, let's but start with that short term. I mean, where did, <clears throat> what are the immediate drivers you see either in research or starting to be in deployment? Sure. So we know, we know uh, from a lot of research that the more information a driver has about their own driving behavior, about how efficiently they're driving, the more efficiently they then drive. Um, and a lot of the same sorts of connectivity and uh, smart driving applications that we're seeing begin to be rolled out can be used immediately to give feedback to the driver on their own driving performance and the MPG that they're getting live. So we expect to see that roll out pretty quickly. Um, maybe Austin, some you know, with, with the advent of Zipcar and Car2Go and, and Uber and Sidecar and all these other companies, you know, doesn't their success actually, you know, get magnified once um, self-driving vehicles become available or situationally aware vehicles uh, become available? Yeah, it's absolutely part of the, the, the broader trend uh, and that we're seeing in the market right now of information technology uh, changing the way that people travel, right? So you mentioned, you mentioned ride sharing and being able to rent a vehicle. It's changing how we use transit and making those modes much more accessible to a broader range of people. So I think absolutely. Um, there's this whole amalgam of, of different effects of information technology on transportation that's really just getting started. You know, and to Austin's point, uh, I had a chance to, this is Greg, I had a chance to visit the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas this year, and a very consistent theme across, uh, across the entire um, assemblage was the advent and the um, importance of 
smartphones. You know, smartphones are no longer just a means of making a phone call. That's kind of, uh, you know, last century. Uh, they are, as we know, miniaturized uh, computers, and car companies are looking at ways to tap into that connectivity that the smartphone brings and integrate it into the vehicle platform. So that would be a means of customizing a zip car going forward. When you have your driver preferences and other things that you'd like to see in a vehicle, everything from infotainment to perhaps uh, you know, uh, steering wheel settings and seat settings and, and whether or not the heat comes on. So as cars become more connected and aware of what the smartphone device will be, that's going to be a core to uh, the intelligence we see in vehicles. So Greg, we're sitting in D.C. today and you know, D.C. has been really on the forefront, I think, of giving people an opportunity to do bike sharing, pe giving people the ability to do zip car and all these other things. And, you know, as a consequence, D.C., the city proper, has actually seen um, a, a real slowdown in terms of vehicle registrations for even with all the population growth in D.C., as well as, you know, driver's li driver licenses. A lot of folks are just getting ID cards from the DMV because they don't actually plan to drive, I mean, is this a trend you guys see going forward in urban environments where you know where cities are are basically becoming more friendly to folks who don't want to own a car? Uh, you know, Jigger, that's a great question, and I'm a native New Yorker, and uh, I could tell you that it's an exception if you live in New York City to have a driver's license. Most folks rely on that robust public transit, whether it's uh, the subways, whether it's the bus network, uh, you know, and I include uh, certainly taxis and liveries in that. So there are many transportation choices that don't require uh, an in individual to uh, invest either in a driver's license or in having to drive. I mean, I have friends who are well into their 30s and 40s before they had a need to uh, obtain a license, and that was only because they moved to a suburb. So, you know, D.C. Ten tended to lag behind that curve, um, but I think we'll see in, in other urban settings, it, it's, it's the same concept you see in San Francisco and other cities that have a strong transportation, public transportation infrastructure. You know, D.C. is now starting to catch up, but I do think that that's going to become the norm, you know, as we become more urbanized, as we move from those communities that are outside of the city center. Uh, the cities are going to become the hubs of not just cultural and economic activity, but it's going to be where folks aggregate. And as a need of that, and as a consequence of that, we'll see a much more greater reliance on on public transportation and walking. Let's not forget walking and bicycling, as you mentioned. You know, those are great ways to get around a city as well. Yeah, I can attest, as listeners know, I am one of those D.C. urbanites who moved from a rural area and got rid of my car as soon as I got here and practically none of my friends actually have cars. And, and as we talked about in the workshop today, it's not just young folks who are making this shift as well. It's older generations who are coming back to the cities. And so this is not just a single generational thing. Uh, Jigger and Catherine, before we move on to the second part, I want to hear what you think are some of the near-term drivers um, for this shift in either driving habits, use of public transportation, or technological integration. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about smart grid because I worked on smart grid and this sort of vehicle to grid and, and how do we start um, as we think about electrifying so much more of what we do, including our transportation, you know, how do you all think about how smart grid and how this utility grid is going to now become such a key part of the transportation system? 
I'll turn to my energy colleague. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're we're going to get a little bit out of a little bit of expertise, but I think we are seeing a general trend where the sort of energy sectors that we've looked at as almost independent entities with transportation, the built environment, and electricity supply really being problems we tried to look at individually. Uh, those are starting to overlap in a lot of ways. Um, and part of that is that uh, individual consumers seem to be more eager to take some of their own energy system uh, into their own hands with things like adopting solar and then also uh, bringing electric vehicles into the house. And we see that there's actually a very strong correlation in surveys among EV adopters, uh, early electric vehicle adopters, and uh, photovoltaic adopters. Yeah. yeah, but also to that point, you know, uh, Kevin Womack, uh, who's our associate administrator for uh, research development technology, and I had a visit to Oak Ridge National Labs, and they were working on uh, in, an inductive electrification system in the roadway. Um, you know, one of the limitations of electric vehicles uh, that offsets the great uh, you know, uh, performance response you have from instantaneous torque and uh, uh, not having not having a need to have uh, potentially a gear you know a gear or a transmission. You can literally have a, a infinite um, a set of variables just from the electric motor itself. But the limitation is is the battery and how long the battery lasts, and you start to get range anxiety when you you know you're 20 miles from a charging station with 10 miles of juice left. So um, I, I think we'll start to see roadways that have the ability to, uh, you know, get electricity from the roadbed into the vehicle, whether it's the old school, uh, you know, model like uh, AFX tracks I had when I was a kid with electric cars that buzzed around on a third rail. That's probably a little bit antiquated, but that's kind of the way we should be thinking about it because, you know, uh, vehicles will have a, uh, an ability to gain electrical uh, power from the roadway that will greatly increase um, uh, the duration and, and the ability to travel and get rid of range anxiety. So I foresee that as well. And the one thing that I, that I learned here at the workshop, but also I think I've seen in the broader marketplace, is that for those of us who've been in the solar business, um, we've had a tremendous amount of um, just real passion for our ability as entrepreneurs to really make money through the deployment of innovation in this segment. Um, which I don't think was matched by entrepreneurs in the transportation industry um, back in 2003. Today, I think that you are seeing that level of excitement, whether it be from um, the huge amount of natural gas deployment, um, which the President talked about at the State of the Union, or whether you're talking about Tesla and the electric vehicle, as well as all these apps that people are using now to be able to really integrate um, public transit and taxis and everything else into their into their lives. And so with Uber and all these other folks making a lot of money in this space, you're seeing some of the best and brightest entrepreneurs looking at transportation, which is I think one of the reasons why a new assistant secretary for you know for research and development really has been formed here at the um, at the Department of Transportation. So I'm excited about the the, the prospect of actually commercializing a lot of this research yeah. that we've been doing for many decades here at the uh, at DOT. And that kind of brings us to the medium term because technologies like solar are getting cheap enough where car companies can start to experiment with integration into the vehicles themselves or charging stations or figure out a way to use these other technologies. And this concept of convergence is, is actually starting to drive transportation planning. And, and so that, that's sort of the type, end of the decade type time frame when we see, we'll see a lot of those play out. And so let's think about around 2020 now. And, and 
you know, by then the electricity sector itself will have undergone a pretty substantial shift. Um, I was at an event this week at the Brookings Institute, and former Duke CEO Jim Rogers was there, and he said, you know, by 2050 or so, the entire electricity system will be a blank slate. And so that leaves a lot of room for distributed renewables, and that shift will have already occurred big time by 2020. So when we look at that blank sheet of paper, I mean, what do we see? Um, and, and the question is, can we see the same thing for transportation? When we talked today about the time frame for a lot of these technologies and the solutions, we're looking at a lot f longer term here. And I don't think that anyone comes to the conclusion that this is a done deal. If you talk to a lot of people in the electricity sector, big CEOs like Jim Rogers, I think he thinks it's almost a done deal in terms of the dominance of distributed generation, medium and long term. So um, Austin, maybe you can kind of flesh this out for me. You helped author a, this recent DOE report on the stunning changes to the economics of LEDs, batteries, solar, wind. Do you see that same acceleration in some of the transportation technologies that we're talking about? I mean, I think each each technology is going to face its own opportunities and challenges. But I, I, I do agree that we've seen a really similar uh, level of success uh, in the improvement of batteries of the last five years uh, that, that almost mirrors the experience in solar, which has been so extraordinary. Uh, from that report, we identified, uh, and this is based on a lot of great analysis that, that DOE does, uh, we saw a 70% decrease in battery costs just since 2008. Uh, and we think there's still a lot of headroom there to get that vehicle, to get those electric vehicles to be fully cost competitive uh, for, for a large segment of people. But that's really an extraordinary amount of progress. And we do expect it that, that, that based on the research targets that DOE has set, that there's a lot of opportunity to keep making those vehicles cheaper. Um, and I think uh, in part because of that, we started to see for the first time uh, electric vehicles entering the market in a really significant way. A lot of people aren't aware that we now have more than 150,000 uh, plug-in electric vehicles on the road, and that's up from basically zero in, in 2009. And that was the other uh, element that that report highlighted, that we've really started to uh, lead to significant deployment that we then expect to feed back and, and help the industry further drive down the costs, uh, leading to a virtuous cycle there. I mean, two things that I'm seeing in the medium term, which I think, you know, excite me from this workshop and other things, is that it does look like by 2020, 100% of all new heavy trucks that are purchased could be running on an alternative fuel, um, whether it's natural gas or, or, or LNG or, or dimethyl ether or whatever else. That The cost of diesel looks stubbornly high, and it looks like when you look at what Peterbilt and Volvo and others are already doing at scale today, that they could actually reach 100% of all new vehicles coming from that fuel in 2020. And the other thing I would predict is that, you know, for folks who are moving to urban centers, it's already the case that a lot of folks aren't buying cars. But I, my sense is by 2020, it will be obvious to everyone, from city council members to mayors, that people who live in cities actually should be able to, and it's actually their fundamental right to be able to, live in those cities without having to own a car. And that it will be the responsibility of the city to provide them with transportation mobility options, to be able to, you know, shuttle their kids around, shuttle their pets around, figure out a way to get to, you know, major stores to buy, you know, the goods and services that they need um, without having to own a car, and that, that's pretty damn exciting. Yeah, Jigger, I feel like that is where the step changes are going to occur because I'm just thinking that for the last 18 years, I've piled four kids and two dogs into a car. First, it was a Honda Odyssey, and 
finally we ended up having to donate that to NPR. And now we have a <laughs> Nissan Rogue. And it's like over the course of 18 years, so our car has gotten slightly more efficient. The only thing that's changed in the whole system is Easy Pass. You know, thank goodness for Easy Pass. But really, like the whole highway system, the way we get on long trips from point A to point B, it's just like I don't see by 2020 what major things are going to change. So I'd love to hear what, Greg, for example, what you think is going to happen between now and 2020 to that experience. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, we're stuck in a vehicular model that started with Daimler back in the 1890s. Um, so I don't foresee that changing in the next six years, but I do start to think more about electrification, and, and DOE is out in front with a call to have the American fleet fully uh, electrified by 2025. I think that's an attainable goal. Um, as Austin talked about, battery technology is, um, is you know, getting much more efficient, and the time frame for development is being compressed. So I think it becomes a much more realizable um, uh, usage of of that technology in the vehicle fleet uh, going forward. You know, I'm an avid motorcyclist, and some of the best motorcycles right now are electrified. Matter of fact, the winner of the Pikes Peak Challenge, which uh, is traditionally a hairy-chested, uh, you know, uh, V8-dominated enterprise, was won by an electric vehicle, uh, principally because it doesn't suffer the, the power losses at elevation. So, you know, there are just inherent technologies in electrification that are apparent uh, that folks see on the performance side, and it's just going to continue to move forward as we start to get into a platform that we're familiar with based on the 1890 model. But the next sea change has to be rethinking the way that we motivate and move ourselves. Gotta love a linear torque curve. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Austin, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the comparison between rollout of natural gas vehicles and electrification of transportation. With electricity, we have a built-in infrastructure. Um, obviously, there are challenges in rolling out um, charging stations, et cetera. But with natural gas, you're talking about building a whole new set of fuel stations, changing the vehicles for different to have different size gas tanks. You have a lot more infrastructure challenges there. And I'm curious, in the medium term, do you see electrification being more uh, feasible. I'm not trying to lead you on this, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think that uh, the reasons you just gave is part of why a lot of the interest in natural gas and transportation has been in the heavy trucking industry. That they have, uh, it's a more easily controlled infrastructure, a more limited set of fueling stations that they can supply it to, and then maybe most dramatically, uh, these large large trucks drive more than 100,000 miles a year in their initial few years of service, and so they're very very affected by the cost of the fuel that you're using, as Jigger mentioned. Um, and so the value proposition there is very clear on a fuel like natural gas that tends to be cheaper, you know, per energy unit uh, in recent history at least than than oil is. Uh, for that same reason, it's a little bit um, harder to see the direct business case in, in light-duty vehicles. Um, and in light-duty vehicles, we also have potentially more, uh, more substitute options. We mentioned electrification. We also know we can uh, use fuel cells and hydrogen to supply light-duty vehicles. There have been several uh, models of fuel cell vehicles announced recently by the major automakers. Uh, and so we think there, there's, there's a lot of options, and it's really going to come down to uh, which vehicles consumers are, are most eager to adopt. So, Greg, I, I think... You know, on that, do you think that that with all of these changes emerging from the smartphone to some of the other things you saw at the CES, that that the Department of Transportation is going to drive that success, or do you think that industry is going to 
um, you know, sort of outpace DOT, and then DOT is going to get back into regulation mm -hmm. of some of these innovative, you know, approaches. Well, you know, we have several roles, of course. There's the regulatory side, but you know, as we talk about in 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 OSTR, there's a, a realization and a need to get back to basic and exploratory research. I think where government does best is setting a goal or setting a standard that may be difficult for industry to attain, or perhaps it's beyond industry's reach. So, um, you know, there are going to be instances where we're out in front, but there are going to be instances where perhaps we need to get an arm around a technology and I don't want to say contain it, but, you know, put it in a, in a form and fashion that's uh, to the best advantage of the American public, right? Sometimes things can uh, get away from us if we're not careful. So I think that's an important role government plays as well. But from where we sit at OSTR, we're interested in pushing the boundaries, finding uh, the technologies or the partners that are working on the technologies that's going to help us create a 21st century uh, uh, transportation system. You know, as I've said in other settings, you know, world-class patents and innovations on 19th and 20th century uh, technology is not progress. You know, we need to start thinking about what are the steps we can take to build a 21st century transportation system from infrastructure all the way through vehicle platforms and beyond. Yeah, I was really impressed today during this workshop, and it really was exciting to be here at Department of Transportation, that how you could work really cross-agency, cross-program, and really start thinking about what's possible. I think you've been thinking about it for a while. What's possible out there? And you're still going to need, as you say, rules, safety, interoperability standards. All these things are still going to need to be put into place. But by you all seeing in the federal government what's possible, that's going to open up the door for entrepreneurs and innovators in this country to really be able to come in and participate in the system. All right, so let's move into the middle of the century now. And uh, the technologist Ray Kurzweil says that the future, that the pace of technological change will be so rapid, its impact so deep, that human life will be irreversibly transformed. And we're experiencing a lot of those deep technological shifts today. But in transportation, is it fast enough? And of course, making this trans transformation even more important is the looming problem of climate change. Um, by the end of the century, given our current trajectory, Scientists are warning of a rise in average global temperatures between 7 and 11 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, that's a catastrophic degree of warming for anyone who follows the science. Given the steady but still fairly marginal trans, uh, trends in transportation development, um, what are some of the big tipping points we should be looking for? I mean, what technology or, or business model development stands out to you as something that could really accelerate this shift? And Austin, maybe we can start with you. Uh, sure, I'd jump right back to, to my favorite thought experiment lately, which is really thinking about uh, connected and automated vehicles and uh, how those have the potential to transform the system. So I think people are really looking for a more seamless life experience in general, and that's underlying a lot of the changes we're seeing in information technology with people wanting to roll a lot of their life functions into what their smartphone can do. But I think the transportation system has a huge role to play there um, in terms of being able to plan your trip, travel seamlessly, uh, you know, buy stuff easily and have it arrive rapidly at your home. Um, and maybe the coolest medium to long term potential outcome of that is that part or all of that trip could become uh, potentially automated. And this has really profound implications both on the, the, the transportation system and then we now know on potentially on the energy impacts of that system. 
um, that we could see some effects that could really save a lot of energy by making travel more efficient um, by allowing, for example, vehicles to platoon on the highway, uh, what we would now call tailgating, but able to do that safely due to due to technology um, and, and therefore save energy on the highway, but it can also open up some potential, uh, some potential backfires where, for example, we might be more willing to live further from our destinations. So I think we're seeing a, a wide open system that we expect people to uh, travel very, very differently, and we're trying to wrap our hands around what does that actually mean for, for energy in the future. Yeah. Greg, what about you? What kind of tipping points are you looking for to accelerate this shift faster than it is today? Mm-hmm. I kind of follow on Austin's point, and I just get back to what I said a little earlier. Got to pat ourselves in the back here at DOT again, but uh, the connected vehicle decision. Um, it will allow for platooning, as Austin talked about, but also importantly, you know, if we have uh, an environment where exponential numbers of crashes are reduced and cars avoid crashes altogether, then the attendant need to have uh, that heavy steel cage that we currently have goes away. So as vehicles start to get lighter and lighter, that's going to be a gain in efficiency in and of itself, uh, extending uh, range and, and, and even reducing emissions because there's not a need to lug around four to 6,000 pounds of metal. So you know, I see that as really one of the linchpins of taking us into spaces that we have not yet contemplated. So that would be kind of the first part of the answer. Uh, the second part, being a kid of the uh, 60s and 70s, I would say flying cars. And folks would say, well, Greg, you're nuts. What are you talking about flying cars? What I say is Elon Musk has a rocket company and a car company. And how long do you think it's going to take before he puts (laughs) those two together? That's right. (laughs) The hyperloop. I love it. You know, I think um, one of the things that that we're seeing, I mean, Caterpillar testified in front of uh, Congress and, you know, basically said that 40% of of all of their freight is now going through Canadian ports. Um, because of multimodal issues in the U.S. And I do think that we, there, there is a sort of 25-year effort that we're going to put forward to figure out multimodal between you know, our ports and our rail infrastructure and de-bottlenecking that, et cetera. I mean, one of the reasons why we have so many 18-wheelers on the road is because we're using that as a sort of a stopgap measure for um, us not having this efficient multimodal um, rail infrastructure and you know a lot of the technology that goes into multimodal is stuff that we've done R&D for here at DOT and I just think that we've you know heretofore had you know some hiccups and some challenges around the, the ability for us to uh, integrate and, and, and to plan properly um, but I think that's you know it's having a, a major impact on our economy now and I think for us to be able to maintain efficient commerce and to be best in class in the world, we're going to have to solve the problem. So I think that'll that'll happen. Yeah. And, and I would just add on to Jigger's point. I mean, that's an excellent point. But, uh, you know, here at DOT, we've recently convened a National Freight Advisory Council. And, and I think you're absolutely right. The, the reason our freight does not travel uh, in, in, in best practice fashion, which would be trucks for the last mile, is because we don't have a national freight strategy. Uh, we have the infrastructure there. We have the means to better tie multimodal uh, move of freight, but we don't do it because of competitive factors, where the trucks are competing with the trains, as you see in the commercials and as you see uh, even in the metro here on some of the signage. So, you know, we've got to have a, a good national discussion about the best way to move goods, what's most efficient in order to get to that place and, like I said, get these things out of Canadian ports. 
I just love that, that you can make a case that the most important freight innovation in the last 30 years was 40 years was a box. Uh, and, and the information technology, of course, that corresponds to that that really allowed them to be moved efficiently. I want to get back to um, Stephen's point about the climate impact. So I think what's going to happen in transportation, which is that you know you have local, municipal, county, state planning entities are really the ones that dictate what is the, what is the transportation system going to look like, you know, with help from federal partners. But what you're doing in that, and I tend to look at everything a little bit this way on the policy side, is that you're building constituencies. So you're building you're building local support for clean transportation technologies, clean transportation systems. And when things start getting really bad, and Congress is the big laggard, I'm afraid, and Congress is not acting, you know, EPA is acting, but Congress is not acting on climate. Once things really start getting worse in the climate, you're going to have all this local support and all these, all these technologies that are going to be there to provide solutions when Congress comes back and finally says, all right, we need, to, we need a cost of carbon or we need something in place to try to mitigate climate. I think the transportation sector, DOT, working with local and state entities is going to have built these great constituencies around clean technology. Yeah, it, re- it really looks that way. I think that's actually, I think we shouldn't understate that as an accomplishment. I don't think that was clear five years ago. Uh, now we do know a lot more about electric drivetrain vehicles, about uh, additional efficiency, light weighting, uh, additional renewable fuels, some of these sorts of, of urban strategies that, that Jigger mentioned where you can design a city differently. Um, and it's been uh, a, a lot of work, but the analysis field is, seems to be drawing to a conclusion in many studies that we do have those tools in the toolbox. But then the, the risk factor on the other side is that each of those has their challenges. And if you want to get to something like 80% or more emissions reduction, it looks like you pretty much need everything you've got in the toolbox. All right, so wrapping up, I mean, looking at all these important drivers, do you feel optimistic that we can achieve that near zero emissions target by the middle of the century? Austin, we'll start with you. I hate to have to start. I'm an eternal optimist, so I, I would say uh, We're all I actually, actually have a lot of optimists here. <laughs> I actually have a lot of confidence that we can get there. If you put the time, the middle of the century, on it, I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge pretty heavily. That's that's it's a lot of time. That's still. that's uh, that's not a lot of years when you're talking about a lot of technology turnover. Um, if I can say we'll get on the path there, then I'll then I'll go full optimist. How's that? Greg Winfrey. Well, I'm an eternal optimist also, but I'm not going to rely on optimism. I'm going to rely on the fact that it's going to be a necessity. I mean, how many more superstorms and other weather anomalies are we going to tolerate before we get it, right? So it's going to be a fact that if we don't act, uh, we will be facing the extreme consequences of extreme weather anomalies and, and other natural phenomena that have been put into motion from, uh, you know, just the inability to control greenhouse gas emission. Catherine, do you think that will accelerate anything on the policy front? No. Oh. Well, I know I try to be an optimist on the show, but... You're pretty um, good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I just, I'm, I'm thinking well, maybe we don't need to rely on those guys. Maybe we don't need to rely on the regulators or the policymakers. Maybe instead we need to rely on everyday people and um, entrepreneurs and innovators and people uh, like Greg and Austin who are working really hard on the federal side to really, um, to really have that vision and move technologies out there and to say there is a problem we need to solve. 
and not rely simply on policy, but really rely on our own imagination and grit, as we are, as we usually do in this country. Jigger, well, give I mean, us your grit. Well, look, I mean, I, I think it's it's important for us to be realistic about this. I think when you think about renewable electricity, um, you've seen extraordinary models out of Japan, Germany, Denmark, et cetera, where you know, literally in a seven or eight year period of time, we've been able to get to 20% renewable energy from a standing stop in those places. And so that gives you hope that in the US, that once you build the supply chain out, which we've done now, that we can sort of hit the same numbers in sort of a seven year time frame. I think in transportation, you know, when you think about how long it's taken for Tesla to get to where it is today, and they're thinking about selling 40,000 cars this year, which is nothing. Um, and so I do think that the supply chain, you know, I think maybe to Austin's point, does take a long time. I mean, the turnover of assets in the transportation industry is a long process. And so if we're going to do it, um, that means that sort of by the 2025 time frame, we've got to be full bore gusto, 100% of everything new by 2025 has to be zero emission to be able to reach the 2050 target. And I, I don't think that's a lot of years. And so I think if we're going to get there, it's going to be a mix of policy uh, where in the renewable energy electricity business that was renewable portfolio standards at the state level. In the transportation sector, I'm not quite sure exactly what it's going to be because cafe standards are great, but that's just like telling coal plants to be more efficient every year, right? I mean, ultimately, you have to switch fuels, you have to switch modes, you have to switch the fundamental way that people actually achieve mobility. And I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of the vision that we're putting out to the, the public. All right, well, fascinating discussion. This was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much for inviting us here because the workshop was really exceptional and there are clearly a lot of people throughout a variety of different agencies doing some really fabulous work. So let's hope it all ties together uh, in a quick time frame. Uh, Greg, Greg Winfrey, thanks for joining us today. Greg is the uh, Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology here at DOT. Thanks very much. No, thanks for having me. Austin Brown of NREL. He's a uh, senior analyst at the uh, Strategic Energy Analysis Center at NREL. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's a pleasure. And of course, you know Catherine Hamilton well. Catherine, always yeah. a pleasure. It was just great to have guests on this week. <laughs> <laughs> and Jigger Shaw, good talking to you. I learned a lot this week. This was fun. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. Uh, you can find us at greentechmedia.com and on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. And for any comments on the show, questions, concerns, email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll catch you next week. Bye.